Thanks, Joe. Uh, evening, everybody. Do you want to uh, uh, find Acts 6 uh, whilst I sort my lecture nap? It's a bit small. Well, that gospel reading, have you ever noticed in the, uh, the gospel, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, uh, that they don't talk very much about church growth. We talk about church growth all the time, and I, I want to go to a church that grows, um, and it's really important. But that, instead of talking about the church growth, it talks about gospel growth, or the spread of the word. And in that reading we just had from Joe, the vine is the spirit-empowered word spreading and growing throughout the world drawing people into the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness by, by, by God, by uh, his uh, son, Jesus Christ. And, and as we are drawn into him, then our, our lives begin to bear fruit uh, as we grow in the knowledge and love of God, don't they? So let's uh, pray. Let's pray for that. Lord, we thank you for this spirit-empowered word, which is your vine, which is embodied by Jesus, in a way, And Lord, I pray that tonight, as we listen to your word preached, we might be drawn into you, that we might know more and more of the knowledge and love of God and bear much fruit uh, for your kingdom in our lives, not only today, but throughout the week. Amen. So, Acts chapter 6, and verse 1. In those days, the numbers of disciples were increasing, And in verse 7, the word of God spread. The word of God spread. I guess the question is, how does the word of God spread? In some sense, at first first sight, it might think, uh, as we read this reading, that the church grows if it's simple, really. If you appoint, some people would be teachers and prayers, and then we appoint other people to the practical stuff. Everybody knows their place. Some people preach, some people serve the coffee, jobs get done, church sorted. But actually, I don't think that's what this passage is saying at all. Well, I think what Luke is trying to say to us is that in order for the church to grow in the power of the Holy Spirit, we all, we all, the whole church, the whole body of Christ represented by us here tonight, We need to be single-minded about gospel work and the way we live out our lives in church and the world. When John Stott talks about the book of Acts, he says the first three chapters are the Holy Spirit at work. You can see the Holy Spirit at work. He's the main actor in the story, if you like. In chapters 4 to 7, John Stott suggests that who we're seeing at work is not the Holy Spirit, but actually an evil spirit, the devil, And we can see that he's in panic mode, really. He's become a really, really desperate creature. The devil knows as he's been dealt this decisive blow by Christ dying on the cross. The devil knows that he's losing his grip on the kingdom as more and more disciples become followers of Christ and and as the church grows in front of his eyes. So the devil has to reach down and pull out his old kit bag of devilish schemes and try to stop this church growing. He wants to stop the word spreading. So what does he do? Well, we've already seen a couple of them in the series that we've been doing in Acts. 
So in chapter 4, we, uh, we get good old-fashioned persecution. So the devil gets the enemies of the church to attack the church, and attack new believers and threaten them. It's a, I mean, it's a particular favorite of the devil, isn't it, of persecution? And we see it happening even today. And it must be very frustrating for him, mustn't it? When, uh, and it, I mean, it doesn't always happen, but quite often when there's persecution, the word spreads, the church grows, people become Christians, as we're seeing now in China. Um, and I just hope that as we see more and more persecution here in the UK and England, as we, as we saw today in the headlines, didn't we, in uh, the guy who works for the Housing Association, having been demoted uh, because he said that he didn't agree with homosexuals becoming married. It's a, it's a matter of government policy under decision, uh, under you know, discussion at the moment, and he just made that comment on Facebook. So let's hope that the outcome is that we, like the apostles in Act 4, uh, speak the word of God even more boldly. So persecution uh, failed in this case. So the devil reaches into his kit bag again and he pulls out moral corruption. So we see that in chapter 5 when Alan preached about it. We get the lying and deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. It was a spiritual deception. And it didn't take Peter quick, uh, long to uncover its satanic origin. So that didn't work either because the disciples, the, the Luke tells us, were soon back in the temple courts and going from house to house, teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Christ. And so we come here to chapter 6 and verse 1, and the numbers of disciples are still increasing. The church is still growing. So the devil returns to his old kit bag, and he pulls out a third device. And here, it is distraction. The devil tries to distract us from the main thing. You see, he thinks, if only I can keep the apostles out of the temple courts, if I can only keep them out of people's homes, everything's going to be okay. So he takes a closer look at what's going on in Jerusalem. And he notes to his horror that not only are they preaching the word and people are being saved, but they're sharing resources, they're caring for the poor within the church, and especially the widows. And the devil knows, as well as we do if we've read Exodus 22, verse 22, that widows are very close to the heart of God. And the people of God must take care of their widows. But then the devil looks around and he notices an opportunity. He says, ooh, many of these widows are poor. They're poor because they've returned to their native Jerusalem from Greek-speaking countries where they've been exiled or their families have been exiled in the past. And unlike the Hebrew or the Aramaic-speaking widows who are on the other side of the church, they, they, they've stayed in their Jerusalem all their lives, so they've got family and friends around them. They've got people to support them. But the Greeks, the returning Greek widows, didn't have those family and friends, potentially. So it's not surprising that this was a particularly large and particularly needy group of people in need within the church. And the problem was that apparently some of them were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And hence, that's why you get the grumbling of the Grecian Jewish converts against the Hebrew-speaking converts. So what could be better, thinks the devil? Two ethnic groups, two language groups, accusations of favoritism. What an opportunity for division and distraction. So all the devil has to do is to whisper into their ears, well, surely the Christian church is all about unity, and yet you are divided. We could say, surely the Christian church is all about caring uh, for this desperate social need, for dealing with that. 
And yet all you can think about is doing is preaching. Why go on preaching when people are starving? Why go on praying when the church is divided? The devil thought, this little mess will keep the apostles busy for months, if not years on end. Well, what we see is the disciples are not going to be caught out. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're not going to be outwitted by the devil's schemes. So turn to verse 2, and you'll see how they deal with it. They call a church meeting. It's what you would do, isn't it? We like church meetings. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, they say, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the words. And everybody at the meeting liked the sound of this idea. So the church members chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So let's have a look at this decision, this meeting in more detail. So let's have a look at the first principle. Well, the first principle was that the widows, the needy, did need to be cared for. And note what they were doing is a daily distribution of food to the widows of the church. It wasn't part directly of their evangelistic mission. They weren't trying to feed all the poor in Jerusalem, of whom there would have been many. It was simply... They were doing what Christian brothers and sisters do for other Christians and brothers and sisters as part of the same body of Christ. If the toe loves the elbow and the spine loves the thigh, if the knee was in need, then the rest of the body looked after it. And it was clearly happening on quite a large scale. So I don't think probably the apostles were directly involved in this, but they probably had quite a large team of people who were organising this distribution of food, both to the Hebrews and to the Greeks working together to look after the poor and the vulnerable. And isn't that how it should be? Isn't that how our church should be, the body of Christ should be? It's such a powerful witness, isn't it, when non-Christians, not yet believers, see what is going on in our church and the care and the love that we have for each other. So just some of the pastoral care work that goes on, the meals for mums, uh, that we, we take round, or uh, meals that we take to people who are just going through a hard time at the thing. The welcome that we give to people as they walk in, the way that the coffee is served to people, it all makes such a big difference, doesn't it? And some people have really good experience of that in Trinity, and other people have a worse experience of that. And we just have to try and work at that to make it more consistent, I guess. I remember a few years ago, uh, we had a friend from the school gate. Her daughter went to the same class as uh, Alex's. And uh, she was called Rachel. And she got to know a lot of Christians from the local church in the village. And she, just, she saw the way that we loved each other and the way we cared for each other. And she used to say to us, yeah, I really love the way you look after each other, the loving relationships that you have with each other. I love the community that you have in your church. I wish I could believe what you believe. It was the sense of community that was drawing her to the gospel. The principle number two, the second principle, 
is what the Apostle said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. They simply stated that. They simply said it as a matter of fact. And nobody uh, argued with them. See, they knew that they must not be distracted from the main thing. And the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. In this case, the main thing was that the apostles preached and prayed. Why both? Well, if you preach and you don't pray, then your preaching will be lifeless and flat. If you pray and you don't preach, then you're simply denying your people of the living word of God that we have in our hands. John Stott uh, says this. He says, Many pastors, instead of concentrating on the ministry of the word, which will include preaching to the congregation, counseling individuals and training groups, become overwhelmed with ministration. Sometimes it's the pastor's fault. He wants to keep all the reins in his own hands. And sometimes it's the people. They want him to be a general factotum. In either case, the consequences are disastrous. The standards of preaching and teaching decline since the pastor has little time to study or pray. And lay people do not exercise their God-given roles because the pastor is doing everything himself. For both reasons, congregation is inhibited from growing into maturity in Christ. Here John Stott is teaching about preachers. But the same applies to small group leaders, uh, people involved in pastoral care who take the word out to people, people involved in one-to-one work, all kinds of different ministries. When I was at university the first time around, the, uh, the largest societies in the university were the Christian Union and the Ballroom Dancing Society. I went to university with lots of engineering and science, so the Ballroom Dancing Society was the only place you ever met any women. And some people said the CU was the same. And we could quite easily build our church around ballroom dancing, or we could start a glee club and get a community choir in here. I think Megan's getting excited. (laughs) We could fill our small groups of all kinds of things, some of which might be good in the right kind of setting. But the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. And in our case, the main thing is to preach the word of God and to pray. And we just need to pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, will let the word dwell in our hearts and make us one with him. So what is this ministry of the word all about? Well, firstly, it's the Bible will make us as uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 says, it will make us wise for salvation. Reading the Bible will save you. Somebody over this weekend I was talking to uh, reminded me, well, just said, I've been reading the book of Romans, and I've realized how much gospel is in the book of Romans. We often ignore the book of Romans because it's long, it's complicated, it's theological, but look at the gospel in the book of Romans. And it reminded me of the time when I used to sit in the Spanish bar with a student from Sweden called Magnus. As they are called Magnus. And we sat there and we read the book of Romans together. We just went through the book of Romans. And six months later, he'd gone back to Sweden. Six months later, he wrote to me and he wanted me to know that he'd been converted, that he'd given his life to Jesus. He'd been converted by his granny of all people. But praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for his granny. And praise the Lord for the book of Romans and the gospel that he heard in the book of Romans. It makes us wise, wise for salvation. 
Secondly, it's also useful for instruction. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and is useful for teaching. So if I look at you now with uh, my glasses on and a little bit of concentration, I can spot Tony sitting at the, the back end of the church over there. But if I take my glasses now off now, all I see is a kind of sort of a unfocused haze of people over there. If Tony waves to me, I know that it's him. But you're all a bit out of focus, all a bit smudged. I can make out the first couple of rows. And all of us have some kind of inkling about God. Some of us have a lot of knowledge. We've been around Christian things for a long time now. But to some extent, it's all a little bit vague, all a little bit smudged, all a little bit out of focus. And as we hear the word preached, as we read the word for ourselves, as we study the word in our small groups, then we're getting God back into focus again. Because it means thinking correctly about his character, his sovereignty, his salvation, his love, his spirit, and all the reality of the way, the way that he works in the world and in our lives. It also focuses us in on our own relationship with God, the way that we are as creatures of his, living uh, under his grace. And hearing the word of God preached or taught in other ways, puts all of that back into focus again for us. And thirdly, it's it's also a protection against false teaching. So all scripture is useful for rebuking and correcting, so Timothy says. You know the type. Some people are just so able to speak convincingly and with supreme confidence about whatever topic they happen to want to talk about, even if they know nothing whatsoever about that topic at all. That's why I don't enjoy quizzes too much. We had a quiz on Saturday evening on the weekend away. And uh, I always find there's usually somebody in your team who knows and can speak with confidence. No, it's definitely that answer. There wasn't anybody like that in my team on Saturday night, thankfully. But normally there is, isn't there? And uh, you just think, do they really know? Or are they just saying that confidently and thinking that, making us think that they know? But we need to be on our guard, don't we? Because there's so many people out there who are able to speak with confidence and write things. They're able to preach, they're able to write books, newspaper articles, blogs on the internet. And yet all they're doing is speaking with confidence. The Bible teaches us. It helps us to avoid false teaching. We need to go to it for ourselves. It is clear. We are able to understand. And finally, the Bible is training in righteousness. As we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit is able to make us good. Don't you want to be good? I do. So we need to ask the Holy Spirit and read our Bibles. Okay, so getting back to the church meeting in Acts chapter 6, what was their decision? Well, it's that they should choose seven men from among them in order to take on responsibility of this daily distribution of foods. But notice that they didn't run over to Norwich City College and and find some people on the catering course there. They didn't run down to the Nelson Hotel and try to headhunt some of the, uh, the top waiters and the best chefs. Because these people who were called were to be full of the spirit and wisdom. You see, their, their service was meant to be a spiritual service, not just one of practical care. In fact, the word used here for service or ministry is the word diaconos, from where we get the English word deacon. And the same word is used both for the ministry of the word 
and the ministry of waiting on tables. They're both deaconing. They're both a ministry. They're both important. They're different, but they're both equally important. And we should get rid of some of this status-conscious uh, thinking in the church, which leads us into so many different problems when we think that one ministry is more important than the other. Sometimes church life divides, doesn't it? It divides into those, we think, who do the word bit and those who make the tea and coffee and who don't bother with the word bit. Now, thankfully, our church isn't all like that because we have quite a few people who serve tea and coffee who do a lot of word ministry in other areas as well. And in fact, some of the, and just the way tea and coffee is served here is great. But it can be like an unwritten rule. But Stephen, one of the first of these men to be picked, he didn't know the rules, did he? It's in verse 8, just look down at that. He says, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. He did many signs and wonders. But the opposition to him didn't come from the miracles he was working. And he did loads of good work feeding the needy of the church. But it, it wasn't his good work that took him in front of the Sanhedrin. See, the response that he got wasn't because of his miracles or his good works. The opposition that he got was because of what he was saying. You see, he went along to this Greek-speaking synagogue uh, where a lot of the Jews had come back from exile from different, uh, different foreign countries, had returned and gone, they'd perhaps been taken as slaves, they'd been, returned, they'd been freed, and then they'd returned back home. That's why it's called the synagogue of the freedmen. And it's even possible that Saul of Tarsus was one of them. He came from uh, Tarsus, the, uh, which was the capital of Sicilia, Cilicia. So perhaps he went... So perhaps, so perhaps he went along to the synagogue too. We don't know. That's just conjecture. But he could have done. But even Paul, with the, the brain the size of a planet that he had, he couldn't argue with Stephen. Why? Because Stephen spoke with wisdom of God. He spoke with the Spirit, uh, or the Holy Spirit, speaking through him, as we were promised by Jesus in Luke 12 and 21. So Stephen didn't know the rules. And he got martyred for it. He was single-minded in combining his gospel service with his gospel speaking. And Philip, the second man mentioned here, he didn't know the rules either. So he was one of those set aside to wait on tables. But then in chapter 8, if you read chapter 8, he was forced out of Jerusalem by the persecution in the church. He, was, uh, he and his friends uh, made their way to Samaria. And as they went, they preached the word wherever they went. Perhaps a better translation would be they gossiped the word wherever they went. And Philip eventually arrived in the city in Samaria and he preached Christ and Luke tells us that there was great joy in the whole city. Later, Philip found himself speaking the word of God to an Ethiopian eunuch and thus he became the first Christian to be able to convert uh, an African to Christianity. And now we know him as Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist was the man who worked with the daily distribution of food in Jerusalem. So Stephen and Philip, they didn't know the unwritten rules. They just served God, and they gossiped the gospel wherever they went. And so as we've seen, the solution that they chose was to take the seven men to oversee the distribution of the food. And just notice that all seven of them had Greek-sounding names. Note the love and the grace of the Hebrew-speaking Christians here. You see, they saw that it was the Greek side of the church who had the grievance. 
right you're wrongly. Now, if they'd wanted to sort out this problem and be representative of the different groups within the church, then perhaps a ratio of, I don't know, five Hebrews to two Greeks, that would have been fair, would have been proportionate. Or if they'd wanted to go the extra mile, well, they could have had the majority of Greeks, couldn't they? Perhaps they could have had three of each, and then a Greek in overall charge. That would have ensured that there'd be no further grievances at all in the future. But no, what they do, the church graciously appoints seven men to oversee the distribution of food to all the widows in the church, Greek and Hebrew, and they were all Greek. Do you see the love, the acts of reconciliation and trust that they were putting into these people? And that's the product, that's the fruit of the word of God in their lives. So the apostles commissioned and authorized them to get on the job by praying for them and laying their hands on them. They were single-minded. The whole church was single-minded in this priority of gospel work. Effectively, they were saying, we want to hear the word of God. There must be no division in our church of any kind. Everyone must be cared for within our church. And the gospel must spread. The gospel will spread, whether it's at work or at the tennis club, over the garden fence or at the school playground, the gospel will spread. In many ways, that's the way that a healthy church operates. You see, Alan and I do this sort of stuff full-time. You keep us in our Bible ministry, in our word ministry. And it's the word of God that drives us all into ministries of different kinds, which meets the needs of both the church and the world. All of our service is driven by the word if I do my part faithfully and I explain the scriptures fairly and accurately to the best of my ability, then I believe that you will do the job that God has put you on this earth to fulfill. On the other hand, if I fail to explain the word clearly and simply and leave you with a fog sitting over your heads, then I'm merely a hindrance to your service. And that's the point, isn't it? That's why we want the main thing to remain the main thing. We should never be distracted away from the main task of the gospel spreading. And the result in Jerusalem was that the grumbling stopped and the word of God spread. And the devil was left looking into his old kit bag, wondering, what can I bring out next? And we'll see that in the next few chapters. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, we pray that that sword might pierce into our souls, that you might lead us through your word into acts of service of all different types and kinds. Lord, I pray that you'll teach us what it is you want us to be doing in this, on, the, on earth, what it is you want us to be doing between now and when we're called to glory. Lord, we long for the word to spread. We long for all the empty seats in this church to be filled up. 
be filled with people desperate to, to listen to your word, desperate to have their lives changed, desperate to receive the salvation uh, only offered by Christ. Lord, change us, Lord. Make us people who not only carry out our practical service, but we go gossiping the gospel as we go. In the name of Christ. Amen.